Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, all of you. Can you hear me out there? I think you can. This is the podcast Undergrads Literature. My name is Luciano Cabral and I am a lecturer in American culture and American literature. And welcome to this episode. So, uh, this episode uh, is all about uh, John Winthrop's A Model of Christian Charity, a sermon Winthrop delivered in 1630, either right before this, this group of Puritans, his group of Puritans departed from England to New England or while he was on board the flagship Arbella sailing to this new land. For this episode, I'll be counting basically on the book The Norton Anthology of American Literature, Volume A, Beginnings to 1820. So, that being said, let's jump into John Winthrop's A Model of Christian Charity. Let's get it started. Winthrop, 1588-1649, was born in Groton, uh, England. His father, uh, Adam Winthrop, was a lawyer and had a successful form. His family was quite well off, and uh, then he was able to do whatever his father's social and economic condition allowed him to. Uh, because of his uh, wealthy family, uh, Winthrop went to Cambridge University for two years and uh, got married really early, when he was 17 years old. Biographers argue that uh, big chances are that he got in touch with Puritan ideas in Cambridge. But now we've got something new here to talk a little bit about, and this is Puritanism. I should say that, uh, at least to me, the most effective way of learning what Puritans, Puritans' ideas are is to compare them to another religious group, the Pilgrims. Both the Puritans and the Pilgrims were dissenters from the Church of England. Both disapproved the series of measures introduced by the English Parliament in the early 1600s. In short, 
these religious dissenters thought that the Church of England had not done enough to purify itself uh, of the the of Catholic influences. Uh, they didn't believe in a church hierarchy with bishops and archbishops, just like the Roman Catholic practices. They believed each congregation should be autonomous. Uh, the group of dissenters called pilgrims were also known as separatists, because for them the Church of England was too corrupt to be reformed. For them, the only way to save their souls was to leave the church altogether and create a new one. But under Elizabeth I's and uh, James, James I's, uh, and especially Charles I's England, uh, splitting from the royal religion wasn't that easy, and uh, not even allowed. Uh, there was persecution. The pilgrims then decided to move to the Netherlands, where they hoped to, to freely uh, worship their god the way they saw fit. But the price to pay for their freedom was high. We're going to talk about it in another episode, uh, the episode about William Bradford and his settlement in 1620 in Plymouth, nowadays a town in Massachusetts, uh, south of Boston. Uh, but uh, what is what is worth keeping in mind for now is that uh, the pilgrims believed that the only way to reform the Church of England was separating altogether from it. But as 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 I've said, um, um, if there are pilgrims, there are also Puritans. Like the pilgrims, the Puritans were all English Protestants who believed that the Church of England. Uh, was corrupt. The liturgy was too Catholic, bishops lived uh, just like princes, and uh, many had too much power. But back then, the King of England ruled both the state and the church. It means that uh, rising against the church also meant rising against the very king's authority. But unlike the pilgrims, the Puritans didn't want uh, to break from the Church of England. They weren't separatists. They wished to they wished to to reform the church from within, purifying it from everything that could be linked to the Roman Catholic Church. And John Winthrop was one of those believers one of those who wanted to improve the Church of England from within. But in the 1600s, severe economic depression in England, as well as the ascension to the throne of Charles I, and this king was known to side with the Roman Catholicism and against the Puritan reformers, uh, all of these conditions uh, pushed Winthrop to obtain the king's permission to move to New England. Uh, so in 1629, a group of about 700 enterprising uh, merchants, all Puritans, were allowed to sail to and to settle in New England. They called themselves the Company of Massachusetts Bay in New England.
After this whole background, um, let's discuss now the text itself, or if you want it, the sermon, a model of Christian charity. So, uh, uh, this sermon, um, delivered in 1630, may be regarded as a utopian text. Winthrop makes it clear that what he wants is to lead his community into a harmonious Christian land, as much as reminding, uh, he, he wanted to remind them that uh, the, they, they will be forever recalled as an example to the world, an example of a Christian triumph as long as they stick to the model, or an example of a Christian failure if they abandoned the, abandoned the novel. The actual history of uh, the Massachusetts colony tells us that Winthrop's utopian, Winthrop's utopian selfless community failed to make it real. They, they failed uh, to make themselves an example uh, uh, for the world. But Winthrop, Winthrop himself emerges for us as New England historian Cotton Mather says, uh, Winthrop emerges for us uh, as uh, the model of the perfect earthly ruler. The opening paragraph of A Model of Christian Charity sets out, sets out uh, uh, the kind of condition, I mean, uh, the world, the kind of world, and consequently the kind of community Winthrop deals with, and I quote, God Almighty in his most holy and wise providence hath so disposed of the condition of mankind, as in all times some must be rich, some poor, some high and eminent in power and dignity, others mean and in subjection. End of quote. What's worth being said here is that uh, uh, by admitting that mankind is made of people from different kinds, uh, from different walks of life, Winthrop lays the foundation for his ideal community. This opening paragraph uh, brings out uh, a very down-to-earth leader, the one who seems uh, to know how dissimilar, how inharmonious his people are and how hard they need to work together to make this place harmonious. This argument delivers from that traditional Christian ideal of unity through diversity in which the community or the chosen ones must knit together as one in order to successfully embrace this inequality. But maybe uh, right after we think about these these uh, arguments, Winthrop's arguments, uh, uh, a follow-up question um, uh, can, be, can be raised. And, and this follow-up question is, how can a tender and warm-hearted God possibly allow such inequality in the world? Winthrop then gives us three reasons for that. The first one is gonna say that the variety in different creatures uh, corroborates uh, the great power of God's creation. In other words, the different walks of life 
we see in the world results from God's omnipotence. The second reason is going to say that uh, as God manifests itself in different ways, inequality means that God has the chance to touch people's lives in different ways as well. So, different people demands different ways of dealing with them, uh, with them. and God is powerful enough to uh, create different people in order to touch people differently. And the third reason that seems to be the most important from Winthrop's purposes is that uh, God has granted uh, people with different backgrounds. He wants them to work together and learn uh, that uh, people need each other or in Winthrop's own words, and I quote, that every man might have need of other, and from hence they might all need more nearly together in the bonds of brotherly affection, end of quote. And then right after that, Winthrop's gonna say that uh, though his group of Puritans may have unbalanced assets, they're all equally honorable because they all need each other. So inequality is a necessity. It's something to be embraced and celebrated, not something to be left behind and overcome. Winthrop sets out two dispositions that must uh, rule over his Massachusetts community. And these dispositions are mercy and justice. In addition to that, he includes a double law, the law of nature and the law of grace, or as he also puts it, the moral law or the law of the gospel. These rules and these laws go hand in hand. The law of nature are worldly laws, or worldly laws. They are outside people. But Winthrop warns us that uh, although this law isn't God-made, it must be taken into consideration, especially because justice, according to Winthrop, must be done out of retribution. And I quote, For the first of these laws, man, as he was unable, so withal, is commanded to love his neighbor as himself. However, the law of nature must conform must uh, mingle with the law of grace because the law of nature has a problem and the problem is it doesn't teach how to deal with the enemies that's the reason why the rule of mercy must be added because god and i quote god commands love to an enemy end of quote thus just like how jesus taught turning the other cheek in the Sermon on the Mountain, that is, to those who slap you on the cheek, Christians should also offer the other cheek, Winthrop instructs that his Puritans uh, must not respond to injury by allowing more injury. And for Winthrop's train of thought, mercy becomes important because this is the way to get salvation. Humanity lost its natural innocence the moment Adam and Eve 
fell from grace. So in order to uh, to to be saved and to be allowed to walk into heaven, um, Christians must be regenerated. And according to Winthrop, true uh, brothers in Christ have to tell the difference between Christians and the others. Being uh, different then means to strip yourself uh, of the willing to revenge. In other words, Christians have to learn how to be merciful on enemies. But if the love nature demands treating uh, every, uh, every member just the, the way every member treats him or herself, Uh, and also, if the love of grace requires otherwise uh, towards enemies, uh, that is, uh, being unresentful, Winthrop moves on uh, to focus on mercy once again, but this time he explains uh, how mercy is to be practiced. And I quote, This duty of mercy is exercised, uh, exercised in a kinds given, lending, and forgiving. And uh, now let's talk a little bit about uh, these three exercises, and I mean to give, to lend, and to forgive. Let's go. From this moment on, Winthrop sorts out his sermon upon questions and answers, and from time to time he raises some potential objections. The first exercise uh, he discusses is given. And then he asks, what role shall a man observe in giving in respect of the measure? Throughout his sermon, John Winthrop quotes the Bible, a rhetorical strategy that shows believers he isn't making up his arguments, but rather that he speaks through God's words. Ultimately, it's God who sets all rules, and not Winthrop. So, based on the books of Luke and Ecclesiastes, Winthrop argues that the Puritans must donate in ordinary times, but, but must provide for the family first and foremost in extraordinary times. And I quote, If the time and occasion be ordinary, he is to give out of his abundance. Let him lay aside as God hath blessed him. If the time and occasion be extraordinary, he must be ruled by them, taking these withal, that then a man cannot likely do too much, especially if he may leave himself and his family under probable means of comfortable subsistence." End of quote. For, for uh, the exercise given, Winthrop moves to the exercise landing. And he asks the same type of question. What role must we observe in lending? In this exercise, Winthrop raises three situations which Puritans must exercise uh, lending, must land. The first one is uh, the member who has no means to pay back. The second one, the member has probable or possible means to pay back, and the third one, the member uh, who has uh, present means to pay back. In the first case, the member who has, the member has no means uh, to pay back, 
Puritans must give him enough according to needs. According to this person's needs. Um, in the second case, the member has probable means, so Puritans must lend, even though there is a chance of not being paid back. In the last case, the third and last case, the member has uh, present means, the transaction must take place accordingly, by the rule of justice, as Winthrop says. It means that uh, what has been lent must be paid back in full. In addition to that, Winthrop says that, uh, and I quote, in case of community of peril, end of quote, uh, forgiveness must be practiced even more intensely this time. But uh, even though Winthrop builds up all his arguments over logical uh, moves, logical thinking, always supported by the Bible, he clarifies that mercy uh, can only be be really effective uh, as long as it affects the soul and not only the rational mind. And uh, that's interesting because uh, uh, some minutes ago I just said that uh, uh, Winthrop is based on the Bible. All of his moves are, are very logical. But right now, his, uh, Winthrop is saying that uh, in, in, for this community to succeed, so um, uh, mercy must uh, affect uh, the soul also, or, or most importantly, the soul, not only the rational mind. And um, this is important in Winthrop's sermon because Winthrop is going to say that the only element that can keep the community together is love. For him, and I quote, love is the bond of perfection, end of quote. And love isn't a matter of a mind only, but most importantly, a matter of a soul. Love touches the heart especially, and uh, love comes concrete, becomes concrete by the presence or by the body of Jesus Christ. And I quote, Christ and his church make one body, the several parts of his body considered apart before they were united, were as disproportionate and uh, as much disordering as uh, so many contrary qualities or elements. But when Christ comes and by his spirit in love knits all these parts to himself and each to other, it is become the most perfect and the best proportionate body in the world. End of quote. So for Winthrop, it's the presence of Jesus Christ, and uh, that's not surprising. It's, it's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the essential element uh, to uh, keep the community together because Jesus Christ is powerful enough to make the community stick together, a community as diverse as, as those Puritans on board of the Arbella, as diverse as mankind itself. Christ is the one to turn an inharmonious uh, group into a harmonious community. In the end of the this this of Winthrop's threat of uh, argument, uh, he concludes that it's the presence, as I said, the presence of Christ, who is also love, 
that uh, Puritans can be merciful. Uh, and uh, by being merciful, they are capable of uh, giving, lending, and forgiving. It's also the presence of Christ that offers the amalgamation of the law of nature and the law of grace under which justice and mercy can be done. So Christ, love, mercy, and justice are the crucial elements to keep the Puritan community as one. Um, the the uh, Winthrop sermon, at least its uh, written version, uh, is split into into two parts. The first one is the one we just uh, discussed, all about the means, uh, in the means to uh, to be successful as a community as one. Uh, the Winthrop discusses this part, but the second part, uh, and this is the second part and the second and last part of Winthrop's sermon, uh, he sets out the directions, or if you will, the compliance of the Massachusetts Company. Winthrop offers uh, them to us four directions uh, related to the persons. And uh, he explains that they are fellow members of Christ, joined together by love. Um, the second is the work, and 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 they are they are trying to find a place where they can found a government, both civil and ecclesiastical. And uh, the there is a fourth direction also, uh, or a motivation, if you will, the end. They want to improve their lives to do more service to God and the means, the last direction. And for him, this is the most important direction, the one which uh, uh, motivates the sermon. And in his words, and I quote, We must love brotherly without dissimulation. We must love one another with a pure heart fervently. We must bear one another's burdens. We must not look into our own things, uh, but also on the things of our brethren, end of quote, or of our brothers. In Winthrop's A Model of Christian Charity, his sermon becomes the guidelines for those who, who want to succeed in such a hard and, and back-breaking enterprise. John Winthrop aims ultimately at turning his community into an example, into a model of Christian practices. And uh, this seems to be one of the most important uh, aims, one of the most important purposes for Winthrop, uh, and that's the reason why we uh, we scholars, or when we think of Winthrop's sermon, we normally uh, come back to one phrase, and the phrase is "a city upon a hill." And I quote: "For we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill." The eyes of all people are upon us, so that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work, we have undertaken and so 
cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a, his, a story and a byword through the world. End of quote. So, thanks uh, all of you for being here with me to the end. Uh, we could learn in this episode that a model of Christian charity by John Winthrop uh, wants to be the ground rule for all communities willing to settle in New England, not only for Puritans, uh, but uh, uh, this sermon is addressed to the world. Uh, Winthrop believed that Puritans would rise above uh, once they joined together, bound by love, justice, mercy, forgiveness. Uh, in short, uh, bound by the presence of Jesus Christ. Uh, in Winthrop's eyes, uh, uh, Puritans should try hard to become an example for the whole world. And uh, for this, the they they uh, they should try hard to become a city upon a hill so thank you very much and see you in our next episode thank you mm -hmm.